Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Case 12, Ruyan calls his master. Every day, Master Ruyan would call to himself, master, then he would answer himself, yes. Then he would say, be wakeful, be alert, I will. From now on, don't fall for people's deceptions. No, never. Okay, so we'll sit for five minutes. So now we'll read the koan again and woman's comment. So, uh, Donna? Okay. Case 12, Rian calls his master. Every day, Master Rian would call to himself, Master. Then he would answer himself, yes. Then he would say, be wakeful, be alert. I will. From now on, don't fall for people's deceptions. No, never. Woman's comment. Old man Ryong uh, is both the buyer and the seller, creating all sorts of facades of gods and demons. Why use them? One who calls, one who answers, one who is awake, one who doesn't fall for deceptions. If you recognize him, you are still not right. If you try to imitate him, you're holding wild fox views. People studying the way do not know the real because they accept only their old discriminating consciousness as themselves which is the root of birth and death since endless kalpas. Fools call this the original person. Okay, <laughs> so now we're going to sit for five minutes and then write for five minutes. Now we'll write for five minutes. I think it's uh, Gail's turn to read. Uh, Gobu's comment. Is that what we're starting with there? Yes. Yes. Ruyan lived during the Tang Dynasty and studied with Chan Master Yanto Quan Huo, uh, 828 through 387. In this case, who is Ruyan calling? Is it Ruyan Xinyan, 820 to 933? Do you think he is calling himself? Do you think he is walking around every day talking to himself or using his calling as a reminder for himself? If you think so, then you have missed the point of the story. And then me. Every Chan master has his or her own style of teaching. 
the context of the story is that when Ruyan passed away, one of his students went to another Chan master who asked him, where are you from? He answered, I studied with Ruyan. Why are you here if you studied with Ruyan? My teacher passed away. Demonstrate his teachings to me. Ruan's students said, my teacher would often ascend to the throne in the Dharma hall and address himself. Ruan, yes, don't be deceived by others. No, never. He would begin his talks like this. We know that this was not a senile old man talking to himself. It was his teaching style. Uh, Nelda, I think it's you. Oh, thank you. You can also rest assured that his teaching was not about some mindfulness practice or some kind of self-reminder to the effect that when you encounter difficulties in your life, you recall the teachings that all things are illusory, that they come about through causes and conditions, that everything is impermanent. Want me to go on? Sure. <laughs> Certainly, it's necessary and helpful to incorporate the Buddha, Buddha Dharma in your daily routine, even using it as a mirror to reflect your own life. Do I do things that I know I shouldn't? For many of us, not only do we do things we shouldn't do, but more. Our own thoughts sometimes contradict each other or may even be harmful to us. You need not worry about other people deceiving you. Your own thoughts do that just fine. Harmful can include wallowing in thoughts of self-pity, depression, self-aggrandizement, and craving and aversion. You pour all of your energy into your thoughts so that you become completely drowned. Your own dark thoughts pull you deeper and deeper. An interesting question is, why do you do this? Who is the master here? Who is the one who governs your life? makes decisions about this and that, about right and wrong. At this level, you practice to try to be master of yourself and not be pushed and pulled by fleeting thoughts and emotions. Instead, you uphold the precepts as a guide, a principle, not as commandments that limit you, but like a mirror that reflects what needs to be done, or like a light tower at night in the middle of the ocean to guide you through the dangerous waves. With the precepts, you learn to do what is right in different situations. Will this action lead to more suffering, or will it lead to peace and happiness? However, if you use Buddha Dharma as a ruler to measure yourself, to feel bad about yourself, then your practice is like putting on a facade, especially if you use ideas to suppress wandering thoughts, to suppress desire, jealousy, and hatred. This is not practicing Buddha Dharma at all. This is a kind of spiritual substitution practice. For this reason, Wu Min says, if you try to imitate him, you're holding wild fox view. Wild fox is an expression in Chan Buddhism that describes those cunning, witty practitioners who have read a lot about Chan who act like they're enlightened. As discussed earlier, the fox in East Asian culture is understood negatively as a trickster. So Chan masters use this metaphor to describe practitioners 
who act like they're enlightened, but who in truth are not. These practitioners are usually intelligent. They have read a lot and know all the right answers. If you ask them a particular gongan, they will respond immediately. Ask them about Buddha Dharma and they will talk about non-duality and emptiness. In Zen, there are a lot of folks like that. If asked who is the master, they may give a shout, cuts, or they will hit the floor with their palms. These acts mimic Chan masters such as Linji or Deshan. Lin talks about facades of gods and demons. Ruyan plays both roles, the god and the demon, the master and the disciple. If you think he is suggesting that there is a master beneath the veil of the facades, that there is some true person, a true identity that is you, then you have fallen into delusion. For this reason, Wu Men says, if you recognize him, you are still not right. This is like a person who thinks that enlightened people should act a certain way and so walks around acting like an enlightened person. Um, this is last time we, uh, Peg had mentioned that I had said something about um, Mara was continually testing Buddha, like he needed the testing. And Peg, I think, was saying that no, he didn't need the testing. Um, but it seems that the the masters, you know, like the Dalai Lama needs to sit four hours a day. The masters need that continual testing and, and to be humble and to not know that there's a difference between Buddha and these masters. Is that, is that the way it seems to you guys? You mean the people who are pretending to be enlightened or the, or the actual masters? Even enlightened people. I mean, I'm taking the master as being you know, perhaps enlightened, but but it's a very fleeting kind of thing that he might be enlightened sometimes. But he he's not. Um, he's he's realizing that he's uh, fallible. Yes, that it's, that it's always necessary to pay attention. That you never get a free ride. Yeah, it's kind of like um, master can be an identity as well. And, and a problem, it's a, a problematic identity. Could be. That's what he's going to talk about. <clears throat> you cloak, that's the paragraph we're on, right? Yeah. You cloak, you cloak, oops, you cloak your true nature with facades or veils. These include roles in life as father, mother, friend, perfectionist, or failure. Sometimes the way you behave is just horrible. Other times you are saintly. The issue, of course, is not about these roles or how you behave. The problem lies in taking them as real, as fixed, as who you are. You have to search deep within and be utterly honest with yourself and ask who you really are. There is no deeper inner self or true self to speak of here, <coughs> nor should you mimic others 
you think are better than you. Woman suggests, people studying the way do not know the real because they accept only their discriminating consciousness as themselves, which is the root of birth and death since endless kalpas. Fools call this the original person. The discriminating consciousness here refers to all the facades you were in daily life. Of course you should take up your responsibilities, your roles in daily life. Yet sometimes your attachment is so ingrained that questioning who you are does not even occur to you. The way you behave in life is all you have ever known. When you encounter a, few, a view opposite to the one you hold, you say it's the other person who is wrong and you are right. When you are challenged, when your views opinion Views, opinions. I can't see the rest. Did you just move it, Kim? Yeah. All right, just a moment. Opinions or feelings are threatened. You believe that what you hold on to defines you. It is what makes up no. who you Okay. You believe that what you hold, yeah, go on. You believe that what you hold on to defines you. It is what makes up who you are. To deny that is scary. Yet you are so much more. You are so much more precious, so much freer than fleeting emotions and changing views, which are precisely the workings of discriminating consciousness. If you identify this as yourself, and that is the root of birth and death, samsara, the cycle of birth and death. I recently attended a talk on Buddhism. The speaker, not a Buddhist, described the Chan realization of no mind as an annihilation of consciousness, so as to awaken to the oneness of the true self. That's neither the correct view of Buddha Dharma, nor the Chan position on no mind. Some people believe that consciousness is diluted, fleeting, and that beneath this superficial layer, there is some kind of entity that is beyond or behind this changing facade. They call this the unchanging self. One of the greatest problems this leads to is an attachment to something in the abstract, something that is beyond space and time. So to naturally come out of this kind of view, we need to get rid of space and time, to get rid of that which is changing, that which is diluted. This would be the natural implication that leads to the duality. It can be quite dangerous as it can lead people to shun society, disengage with it, since after all, the world is just an illusion. From the perspective of Chan, this is just another illusion. There is nothing behind consciousness, nor can you trust this consciousness. This master is not someone or something that is an unchanging entity behind all your discursive thoughts and fleeting emotions. Since you cannot trust your spiritual well-being to your thoughts and feelings, to your discriminating consciousness, then what can you trust? That is how you should meditate on this case. Who is this master? 
this places you in a position where you cannot attach to any notions of master or self. This is a great place to be where you can neither advance nor retreat. Similarly, you should not think of all the roles that you play, identifying all of your judgments and feelings as yourself. When you go home, you're a father. When you are among friends, you're a friend. When you are among kids, you are a parent. When you are before your teacher, you are a student. When you are angry, when you are happy, when you are jealous, when you are generous, you mustn't think that behind all of these selves, there is some kind of fixed identity. And then if somehow you can get rid of some of them, you will find the true one or you will become greatly enlightened. That would be wrong. How should you proceed in your practice? Here's an example. In the Yan Dynasty, there was a Chan master, Gail Feng, Yang Mio, who had a very solid practice. <coughs> he always followed the precepts and was mindful day and night. He went to study with Chan Master Zeyan Zukin. Zeyan asked, Zuyan asked, What's your practice? Gail Feng replied, Such and such, and mentioned that he was his own master. The teacher said, oh, you are your own master. During the day, are you able to be your master? Very confidently, Gail Feng said, yes. The master asked, under all circumstances and favorable conditions, such as when someone praises you or in challenging conditions, are, <coughs> are you able to be your own master? Gail Feng said, replied, yes. Then the master asked, how about in sleep? Are you able to be the master when you sleep? Gail Feng said, yes. He could control his dreams, remain mindful, and not break precepts. Then the master laughed. Congratulations. But what about when the master is absent? Where is he? Who is the master then? That left Gail Feng dumbfounded. He had never thought, who is the master? Who is this, who is this master? In Gaofeng's puzzlement, Zhuyan said, just that, stay with that. Gaofeng couldn't sleep. He tossed and turned all night long, asking himself, who's the master? Who's the master? Who the hell is the master? Who's preventing me from doing this, from doing that? Who is up who's upholding the precepts? Who's having no wandering thoughts? What happens if he's not there? If he is not there, what's left? Absent? Present? Exist? Not exist? Who is he? <laughs> Mr. Shuian had given him a wonderful present. Next day, Gaofeng went to Zhuishan, who just beat him, which pushed further his sense of wonderment. This lasted for several weeks, until one night, while lying down deep in his wonderment, Gaofeng's pillow dropped to the ground, forcing his head to jolt. Pillows in those pre-modern Chan monasteries were not like our modern down or cotton-filled pillows, but were hard as they were made of bound bamboo sticks. 
The pillow made a crisp sound as it hit the floor. As soon as Gaofeng heard it, he became completely enlightened. Now you can try throwing your pillow down and see if that will help you reach enlightenment. No, it won't. You must go through the same diligent practice that Gao Feng went through. Or you can take the shortcut and just directly ask, who is the master? But please don't accept the answers that may come up. They are merely the workings of discriminating consciousness, more facades that delude you. If you think you have found your true self, original person, or true master, then you are dead wrong. Just keep on asking. This kind of shortcut practice is most effective in intense seven or 10 day Chan retreats where you can bracket your daily life and completely dive into this practice. That's why it is called a shortcut. In daily life, however, I suggest that you take the first approach where Galfin was a master of himself day and night Follow the precepts. Sustain your mindfulness throughout the day. Don't waste your time dreaming of this or that at night. When you make yourself ripe for intense practice, you can then dive directly into the workings on the Watu. Who's the master? You are not any one of these facades, not even the one where you think you're a Chan practitioner. These are not the culprit. The culprit is your attachment. Don't try to get rid of wandering thoughts or delusion. Simply ask until you find yourself in a conundrum of not knowing, in a state of great wonderment. We call this the fundamental questioning or the original investigation. It does not matter if you practice silent illumination or huo tu or uh, gong yan or mindfulness of breath. This wanting to know who you are must always be present relatively speaking. It is something that you return to. And if you think you found it, let me reread from Wu Men's commentary again. If you recognize him, you are still not right. If you try to imitate him, you are holding wild fox views. And the kid who held up his finger, he tried doing that, didn't he? Yeah. You, you, it, it's this issue of uh, imitation or um, aspiration to be like someone else, where you have a, just this projection, this notion. Or to, be, or to be like what you think a master should be. Exactly. That yeah. would be, that would be the, the deadly path yeah yeah and as he says they're everywhere you know people people with that uh, notion hey i have a question yes yes i mean it's scary for me to ask this but i i want to ask it for me having grown up with a schizophrenic mother holding to truth finding truth um was crucial and to not know truth about who I am, to sit in as this says, what is the wonderment is crazy making for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't 
know how to get myself to the point where this practice doesn't feel crazy making. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's exactly what this uh, very first koan is. It's about that where you're saying to yourself, you know, be wakeful, be alert, don't fall for other people's deceptions, right? So your mother was troubled by her own mind, which wasn't regulated by um, uh, accord with reality, for example, right? And right. so, but it had an internal coherence for her. And this is why um, you may feel some need for vigilance because you might very well believe that things are fine from the inside and, uh, you know, and, and discover, oh, it's not aligned with reality, right? So this is, the, I, I understand this concern completely. You know, it's, it's the best argument for being awake I can think of, right? And to recognize, oh, yes, um, I have my perspective. My perspective is very likely to be skewed. At the very least, it's limited, right? And so this is part of the function of Sangha to help us um, maintain our uh, shared connection with uh, and alignment with what's real, what is, with thusness. But every time we look really closely at what is that and who am I, um, we start to see the boundaries are not all that firm, right? Yeah. It seems that, oh, I had a friend who was very schizophrenic and he would go in for shock treatments and come out as a different person each time. Like one time it would be, as Jesus and then as Buddha and then, you know, and then, I, well, who are you now? And, yeah. But anyway, there was a real, he was absolutely convinced without, with complete certainty that he was this or that at those times. That's right. Hence why practice in isolation is contraindicated. Um, unless you have a really solid grounding and really solid, uh, you know, base foundation to practice with. So, uh, so I think this is the vital function of Sangha is to provide a reflection that helps us accord with reality. Not that we become, you know, little followers or little conformists to another group, but that, um, that continues to invite us to, first of all, to recognize the limitations of our own minds. And, uh, and second of all, to get uh, this uh, congruence with what is. It seems important that the Sangha is diverse in many different ways, or, or else you'll just get reinforcement of That's right. That's one right. thing. That's absolutely correct. That's why uh, an emphasis on diversity is really critical for the health and well-being of the, of the Sangha or an ecosystem. And I want to honor my mom at this point. I just I want to say how lovely that I had in some ways the experience of that mother to help me understand that as we see reality doesn't make it so. Yeah. And and so she in in having lived with her, she taught me that I am in delusion a lot of the time. You know, we all are. Yeah. Can be can be in delusion all the time. I just it's just a scary for me to sit with 
not knowing, <laughs> not knowing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a different thing. It's a different, it's not, um, it's not the kind, it's not the sense of dissolution and no self that is part of many kinds of mental illness. Um, it's, it's the sense of, oh, this is an assemblage, right? And this assemblage is uh, dependent on causes and conditions. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so a tiny change in a brain chemi chemical can make you go a completely different direction, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> or a head injury. So, uh, so there was a, a neurosurgeon who did studies of people on death row, and he found that 80% of them had had some kind of brain injury to their prefrontal cortex in youth that had damaged their judgment and reason. Well, that was a finding that had never happened before, right? So some things like that we can't really control for. And that's why it's really, it's important to be awake, you know, just as the master says here, you know, be, be awake. Be awake. Tim, could you remove the text, please? I, I'd like to see everybody's face. Thank you. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is really, this is a perfect koan for you, really, because it's about not falling for people's deceptions, um, having this sort of uh, sense of inner wisdom, this deep inner wisdom, but knowing that it's not a solid self, there's not a, there's not a solid self behind it, but that doesn't need to be frightening um, because it's not that, it's not a sense of a vacancy. It's like, not like there's nothing there. You're still going to drive a car. You're still going to have a job. You're still going to, you know, pay your bills and all of that. It's just recognizing, oh, it's not as solid as we think it is. And you had the example of your mother as sort of out at the extreme end of that without much um, opportunity or without much ability for course correction. Not just, I don't know if people understand what it's like to live it up, but uh, there are various scenes in Silence of the Lambs that remind me of my mom in that she could shift into different, very different dissociative states in a second, like a fish flowing. So one she would be here and the next minute she'd be there and to, to find her, you know, where, where was she in all of this? And then where was I safe in all of this? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like a gymnast. Yeah. 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 It's amazing what a child can learn to do under those very, very extraordinary circumstances, right? How they learn to compensate, to try to predict, to plan ways to make sure that things turn out okay, that yeah, to deal with the, uh, distress and um, and to manage their own emotion states. Yeah, lots of firefighters and managers. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Thank and you, so, Yeah, and so those firefighters and managers are valuable and we uh, we cherish them. They're not to be gotten rid of. Yeah. Yeah, and we know that they're parts, not that's not all of who we are. So it's not to say that there's no self there. It's just much vaster than people think it is. I kind of liked um, uh, Guagu's 
um, comment about how people then also, when they when they kind of see through all the ways that we attach, then want to actually though land on some sort of solid entity behind the whole thing. Yeah. And um, uh, you know that was very interesting to me how he pointed he pointed that out because. I think I've been guilty of that sometimes. Um, you know, I'm trying, you know, you, the mind wants to picture what say emptiness is or what the ground of being is or, you know, what that is. And it's just, um, it's part of the way my mind wants to kind of concretize and conceptualize something. And it's, you know, it's, um, it's interesting, you know, that that's not it either. You know. <laughs> yeah, but we have a kind of, um, uh, I think, insistence on it somehow. Mm. We just, but there must be something then. Yeah. This reminds me. Um, I've heard in you know uh, Zen or or uh, other um, spiritual practices, maybe non-dual practices, where they talk about the direct path mm -hmm. and the direct path is to keep really just focusing on what am I, what am I? Um, it's kind of the same as what we're reading here, like who is the master or who's, at, who's asking the question, who's answering, what, you know, what is this? Yeah, I think that's the better question is what is this? Yeah. Because it includes the situation and everything and everyone in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I like that. Yeah. I, I, I get a bigger charge or, or inspiration out of what is this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm calling it uh, whatever, you know, I'm, and, um, and that's my take on it, but what, what is it actually? What is it really? So. Yeah. It takes us into a, uh, a really open, <laughs> not so much a um, settled story. The settled stories are, are part of the problem. Yeah, I, I really appreciated how he said not to come up with any answers. That's not it. <laughs> just, just keep that curiosity and that open yeah. question. Yeah. Well, that's what um, uh, Chan teachers do when they're working with koans is they basically say, that's not it. <laughs> no, and that's not it either. No. No, that's not it. <laughs> Until you're really hung out to dry, you know. All right, just like, <laughs> what is it? I want to know what it is. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I'd like to read this. It's from um, Liberating Intimacy, and it's it relates to um, the koans we've been reading. And it's just one sentence. And so even today, Chan masters will challenge beginning students by asking them, 25 years ago, Buddha, present day Buddha, and you, are they the same or different? If the student answers the same, he receives 30 blows. If he says different, he receives 30 blows. If he tries both the same and different, he is dismissed as unworthy. Wait. Uh, if he tries both the same and different, he is at, at 60 times. And if he says neither the same nor different, he is dismissed as unworthy even of the stick. In short, 
the student is challenged to resist all judgment, all decision, and hence all reliance on the segregation of self mm. and other, of knowing and known. He or she must truly, that is correctively, respond mm. with the situation. At the very least, this means undoing the dualism of the master's question. Mm. Which seems also a good uh, explanation or a good insight into does a dog have Buddha nature? Yeah. Uh, so Linda was asking me about that this morning. About the dog having Buddha nature? No, about this paragraph. Oh, uh-huh. I said, yeah. how, you know, how are you doing? And she said, well, it's very confusing. It's wonderful, though. I mean, he's really, he's a wonderful writer. I'm sorry. I'll take my 30 lashes. Of course, <laughs> a, do of course a dog has Buddha nature. There's no doubt. <laughs> No that's doubt. why the answer is a con, you know, that's why it isn't a newspaper article, you know, the, the real answer is a con, empty, empty. Yeah, it's so, um, it's so refreshing, these cons, because they're not little narratives of, you know, logical reasoning, but they, but when you work with them you realize they can't be other than the what they are it's the same as really great poetry can't be other than what it is you can't paraphrase it you can't you know summarize it um so it's kind of like that um that it hits you someplace different than your reasoning conceptual mind although the conceptual mind keeps trying to worry with it my first thought is always how could this be a koan how could it have survived yeah exactly yeah, this you is always, dumb. I always think to myself, a thousand years they've been studying this. A thousand years, you know, what is here? What is this? That's the first part of the koan. <laughs> Why is this in the curriculum? Still, yeah. what am I missing? What am I not seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, you know, then that follows the, I think I'm just too dumb for this practice. You know, I just think I can't do it. I'm just too stupid. Thank you for that. I almost quit the practice this week, Peg. I almost determined not to go back. I have been feeling just so dumb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, that part of our mind that is invested in uh, sort of, rationally figuring things out gets defeated and that's actually helpful you're still going to have the use of it for things that you need to you know contracts and things like that but um we depend and rely on it to solve every problem or to answer every question and this is where our koans teach us oh this is the limited the logical mind is limited conceptual mind is limited so so yeah, so then we're, we're thwarted and, and we have to be really fully thwarted for us to get that. But it seems that this koan is about the second you let down your guard and think you know something, then you're kind of, then you're, you yeah, don't. It's, 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 it's the um, exhortation to guard against that, isn't it? the sense of knowing, which is, makes it perplexing as a koan, since you're supposed to 
resolve a koan in, in the direction of knowing something, right? Even if it's even if it's ineffable, even if it's wordless. So not to be deceived, you know, and uh, it's such a such a crucial thing. So Nelda, maybe you're in the perfect place. You are. Thank you know, I am because you know what I remembered in the I'm just gonna stop going. I'm too dumb for this. I can't get it. I'm not gonna get it. I remembered right in the back of my mind, I'm gonna cry here. It's a lot of emotion attached to this remembrance. Peg saying that once you take the precepts, the precepts take you. It's true. So here I am. So here you are. Yeah. And to re return to the simplest, simplest practice of simply sitting in stillness and silence. It doesn't require any intelligence at all. It doesn't require figuring anything out. It's just this watchful awakeness, nothing to it. It's pure simplicity. Just return to that. Uh, and well, Peg, you know, here's the thing. I do. But there's so much what feels to me intellect. I think this practice, and, and that's where I think I'm dumb, is so simple. Nothing's fixed. Love everyone with compassion. Use your best and wisest and most ethical and heartfelt decision-making under a dependent arising and move forward and just keep moving forward. But then I t attend lectures and talks and list or read the notes on, on our, our uh, email news feed. And there's such deep little talks about this and that. And I think, is it that complicated? Do I really need to go there? I mean, it just feels like it's, it gets needlessly complicated in discourse. And then I feel like I'm judging and then I feel bad and then, you know, so there's a whole system that falls right into place there. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of, um, I think it was Uchiyama who um, Katagiri went into and said, you can't talk about this. And Uchiyama said to him, but you have to say something. So everything that we do in the talks and everything is the saying something. And for uh, the chance that something will resonate with someone enough that they say, well, I'm willing to give it a try, you know, um, or gives them a context for it that they can identify with, then it's worth it. But you should always allow it to just wash over you like a tide, you know, it's just like a tidal wave. Okay. Something may um, touch you, something may resonate with you, something may not, but it's just a wave. And the, um, the wave is intended to open a door for people who need a door. I also think listening to you, Nelda, I, I've had the same feelings that sometimes um, Zen or, or Buddhism felt very esoteric, hard to understand. And, but I found, I discovered that there is this huge heart element. And if I stay with the heart, like you're just talking about, uh, some somehow that then I don't need to understand anymore. You know, uh, it's sort of like a heart wisdom opens up, and then it doesn't matter. You know, 
you know, how, how it's being explained or the discourse or whether I get what they're talking about. Um, you know, it sounds to me like you, you're, re you're really, you know, you have this open heart. It's kind of your heart centered. So mm -hmm. um, devotional practices like um, doing meta for me, you know, if I, if I just do meta, you know, or, um, uh, you know, those, those, those sorts of things really open me up in my practice here. My daily mantra as I walk through my entire day is breathe in life, breathe out love. Breathe in life, breathe out love. I do that all day long. And, and, and yeah, because that's how simple I need to get in order to walk this Zen path. That's it's about all I can hold sometimes. That's a lot. <laughs> in today's world, I mean, that is like, I, to me, that's like the most important. Um, yeah. You know, what's neat about the book of Zen and the Way of Archery is this German philosopher goes to Japan to learn archery and uh, to learn about Zen. And they immediately say, well, you just have to study a Zen art. So it's none of the, the discourse. It's just simply learning to do something and and then he's having a lot of trouble learning it. So the teacher um, stays up all night and reads all of Western philosophy. And then he comes back to the, the guy learning about Zen and says, okay, I understand your problem. <laughs> That's quite a teacher. <laughs> Who can read all of Western uh, in, in night. one night? Yeah, <laughs> I know I'm not going to be able to do that. Don't don't expect me to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there's so much discursive thinking, um, even in Zen, which is intended really to support people in their practice. But the practice is the real thing. That's the center of everything. Well, do you think, I, I mean, it seems so, um, such a great balance with Western education, but do you think it's as needed in the East? What? You think? Uh, the non learning, Zen and, and being not non-discursive. Well, I definitely, I think it's, it's necessary everywhere. And, and it has to do with not so much East or West, but as, uh, the ways that our uh, methods of communication and our technologies have proliferated discourse. You know, it's pro proliferated it to an insane degree. So people are exhausted and overwhelmed by it. The influx of email, uh, you know, Twitter and Facebook and just trying to keep up with it. I, I agree, Peg, about, you know, it's our practice that's, that's key. And when you say practice, I'm, um, I, I'm taking that to mean um, silence, really, or sitting, you know. And, and I remember Flint years ago, I was studying, well, I was at Appamata, and then I was into non-dual teaching, you know, Hindu traditions, and I was into Course of Miracles, and I was going all these places because 
different things would call to me and I just wanted to, to, to explore them to explore them and I went to Flint and I said I think I'm you know I, I think I, there's just way too much I mean I don't know maybe there's just way too much Flint you know I've got too going and he said just don't forget your practice you know in, in other words he, he was telling me go ahead and explore go yeah. read that go do this he says but just don't forget your practice because I think that's at the heart of it, at the very heart of it, is that silence, right? Yes, that's the the signature of Chan is that, the centrality of Zazen. Yeah, absolutely fundamental. If that's not happening, you're not really engaging with it. You know, you're, um, so, so yeah, whatever else you're doing, reading in other traditions, you know, watching sports, whatever else you're doing, if your practice is solid, None of that is going to uh, unseat you, you know. Um, it's just a diversion, really. And sometimes people will engage in that. I don't think you in particular, but sometimes people engage in that um, to keep things at a kind of superficial level, because to stop is to plant your flag somewhere and go deep. And to go deep is scary, you know. So better to just sort of shop around a little bit here from these folks or the new agey folks over here and then a little bit from this other tradition over here, you know, um, and that's a lot easier. Um, it's just sort of cafeteria styles in or practice, you know. Um, yeah, I, I understand that. Um, but if I've planted my flag anywhere, it's with um, my heartfelt aspiration and sitting. Yeah. And, and I, I um, uh, you that's know, I, I practitioner. Yeah, that's 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 where, and that's where whatever insight happens to come, you know, happens to fly up or whatever, it comes in the wake of that, and I know that it's from that. Yeah. It's not because I read something, you no. know. Yeah. Yeah, and that's and and so you can read all you want to, and oftentimes study is a wonderful complement to practice if it encourages and inspires you and um, provokes you and um and expands your mind great you know but at the heart of it it has to be connected to, to sitting and when people are confused in their practice or feeling alienated from their practice it's always the case that they just are not having a consistent and regular practice well so, i will confess i haven't because for the past well, and it's been, it's been a hectic time and I'm not making excuses. You know, I worked the polls for a long yeah. time yeah. and, and then tried to de-stress from that. And it wasn't stressful. It was actually energizing and exhausting, but here's what's happened. And it's, it's, it's unsettling to me for the past several weeks. And it's not happened before for the past couple of weeks, every time I sit, there's this constant little voice saying, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? What a waste of time. Really, what do you get? I mean, it's just constant and I don't know how to stop it. I tell it, be quiet, little mind, be quiet. I just want to breathe in life, breathe out love here. And, and even that feels like a distraction. Like I'm not even able to go deep because I'm having to manage this little nagging uh, dissenter. Yeah, which is obviously trying to distract you from going deeper. Ah, thank obviously, you. quite quite worried. So, 
I would turn towards that part and say, I can see you're really concerned about this. Oh, thank you. What are you worried will happen? Thank you. So you, it could, you, could, you could name it Mara. It may be that that part is recalling your mother's experience and is fearful that something like mm -hmm. that could happen to you. And so that's, I mean, you have to deal with that part directly by turning toward it and befriending it and saying, that's why we have teachers. That's why we have mentors. Thank you, Peg, because I have, thank you. There it is. That's, that resonates. <sighs> yes. Yeah. Those, those parts are afraid. And so this is their method, you know, they, they use the methods of childhood, really. It's like a, it's like a kid on a playground saying, right, saying, you're stupid, you're stupid, Stop, you know, like, yeah. So they use those methods. So you have to befriend them and understand what their fears are. Yeah. And for all those parts, it's about becoming the wise parent of that part that it didn't have when it was little, when it got created, you know, just to say, what are you worried about? Oh, yeah, that would be bad if that happened. And here's what we're doing to make sure that doesn't happen. And we're not five anymore. We're 64. <laughs> well, the parts don't really know. They don't know that, do they? No, they don't. They don't. But, when, but they can be reassured and they can be reassured by that Buddha heart and mind that's vast and boundless, you know, and it, and it can hold them and say, yeah, you know, it's this grandmother mind. How was a grandmother with a, with a part like that, you know? She says, come here and tell me what's going on. What are you worried about? I can see you're worried about something. What are you worried about? And it's without an agenda. It's just like the grandmother's just got plenty of time, you know? So, so Peg, yeah. it's, when I first started sitting, and I'm kind of in on this, what Mel was talking about, I became really aware of what they call the voice in the head. You know, the voice in the head. And I, you know. And what if there's just one? Yeah, there's, well, I mean, it's just nonstop. And I wasn't aware that it was talking so much. You know, it was just like a constant narration, but I hadn't become aware of it until I started sitting. That's right. And, and you're saying that the voice in the head is really almost expressing these different parts of us. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so I could see if I'd had a mother who was schizophrenic, my mother was unbalanced. She wasn't schizophrenic, but she had mental health issues, right? Um, you know, I, I would be very concerned about a voice in the head. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> And, um, <laughs> yeah, and that's why it's really important to yeah. get that part um, integrated and yeah. in healthy role. So, uh, so the way it thinks it's helping you, um, it it really believes it's helping you, and that's the problem, right? So if you if you believed that voice, it would be problematic. If you actually believed what that voice was telling you was true, that would be problematic and that would be schizophrenic. But you recognize this is a voice in my head and it's got this nattering, you know, quality to it. Um, so, uh, so to turn toward it and to assist it in uh, relieving itself of its fears, you know, so, so it doesn't have to be 
constantly going on, then, then you're, you're actually resolving that. You're not creating more stress and, um, and contention there. And I let go of that fear at 40 when a therapist said, if you're not schizophrenic by now, you're not going to be. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, good. You don't get schizophrenic at your age. No. Right. You're just normally crazy like the rest That's of us. That's right. I've just got my part. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, um, I think you can befriend those parts and help them just like a grandmother would help them settle down, um, help them be feel loved and cherished and, um, and calmed down a little bit, get agitated. Um, so I love that image of the, you know, like a grandmother on a park bench mm -hmm. and here are all these little kids on the playground. They're all, they're all parts of you, you know, and there's a little one that's a bully that's always mad. And there's the little one that's always sad and weeping. And there's a little one that's just a little bundle of light, just so happy and loving, you know, your grandmother loves all of them. She's saying to the angry one, come over here. Tell what's going on. Oh, he, oh, he made you so mad. Oh yeah. What? Did, oh, when he said that, that made you mad, didn't it? You know, it's like, that's the grandmother. <laughs> and then yeah. the kid settles down, you know, sit here with me for a while. Let's just sit here and watch what's happening. Um, so I love, I love that. And yeah, I love that image in, uh, in Zen of the grandmother mind, because it's that quality of being attentive and caring but not being caught up in the story and believing the story, you know? So. I remember when you first talked about grandmother mind um, and uh, how it really resonated with me. And I've told lots of people and other, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> parts of my life about grandmother mind and it resonates with everybody. Everybody can kind of understand them um, about how you can meet these parts with, with, you know, love. I mean, your grandchild might be a bully, but you still love them, you know. You're not saying you've got to get rid of this kid, you know, like this kid's got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I sometimes talk to myself and I'll, when I find myself, I've been making myself suffer with some thought or other. I'll go, oh, sweetie. Yeah. Oh, honey, no wonder you feel so bad. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that really upset you. Yeah. And sometimes I'll think, now, why, why did I feel I needed this particular variety of punishment or whatever, or this particular hindrance, or why did this show up now? And usually those agitated parts show up because things are going so well. So, and it makes them nervous. <laughs> They're afraid that you'll relax and not pay attention, not be paying attention, be wakeful, and you'll get deceived or that something bad will happen, or, you know, here you are, are you, you're a meditation, you're asleep at the wheel, <laughs> literally, as far as those parts were concerned. Yeah, so, so the fact that they, that they come in such agitation to me is always very telling, you know. But there's another part, that something we're reading and standing at the edge was the creation of dopamine when, <laughs> you know, when things aren't going well. So we do get a, 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 a little, you know, a little hit, hit, yeah, a little hit when things are going well, and and probably some people more than others. Yeah. So, so then, then in some way we screw things up so that. Well, we have an aversive reaction to happiness. That's um, and it's partly because what we have it's it's ego dystonic 
to be happy when we have inner uh -huh. happiness most of the time. So the parts get very, very agitated and distressed because it looks like uh, to them, you're in a fantasy land. When the truth is bleak, dark, frightening, you know, um, their view is what they think reality is. So they can't, so it's very uh, frightening when we're happy and, oh, this is beautiful, you know, um, that's very frightening to them because to them, we're delusional. And so uh, Trump has been able to keep this up for his people. Yeah, absolutely. This rush. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's egocentric for them. Everyone's against you. There are conspiracies. You know, everybody can see this. You know, things are not going well, and there's a reason for that. Um, and we can tell you what the reason is. Um, and, uh, and it's satisfying in that way. It matches what their inner experience is. It feels familiar. It feels familiar. That's Absolutely. what I uh, finally found out for myself is, um, you know, that's why you, well, you said, you know, when you're feeling happy, then all of a sudden you're worried that's, you know, that's going to go away. It's not going to last. It never does. Yeah. And, and well, that's well, because well, the other one feels familiar. It feels like this is, I may be <laughs> suffering, but I'm used to this and I know what it is. And this is what it, the way it normally is. That's the great lie of our conditioning. And yeah. it's, a, it's a super lie of depression. This is the way things really are. And anytime you've ever been happy, you've just been delusional. Um, and anytime that it seemed like things were going well, you could see that it was only temporary, right? It didn't last. So the, um, that's the great lie that's told by our conditioning. This is the way things really are. And in practice, we start to dissolve that and it makes some some parts quite hysterical when it starts to dissolve. It just freaks them right out. They want a job. They want to do their job. Well, they're afraid you're going to get rid of them and that they and that they won't have a job. And so they need reassurance. That's why we turn toward them and we say, "Oh, baby, you know, no, 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 no. We're still going to need to drive on the roads and make plane reservations, and you know, we're still going to need to organize our desk. And don't worry, you're always going to have a job." <laughs> It's just, you're not going to be flogging me. So as I always tell them, the punishment phase is over, but your job is still secure. So we will now say, instead of darn you, bless your heart. Well, yeah. And I think, I think the main thing is to realize that um, they want to be free, but they want to be appreciated. Um, all the parts. And they, um, and they want us to appreciate how hard they've worked or how much pain they've suffered, whatever. You know, they just want us to know that um, and to acknowledge it. And they don't want us to fix them or get rid of them. Relieving their burdens is not the same as saying there's something wrong with you that has to be fixed. We're, just, we're removing the burdens. So they don't have to carry them. But, it's, but to me, this is very gratifying work. It's very liberating. Um, and every time you have an upsetting, distressing thing, like experience like you had, Nelda, where you recognize, you know, this whatever voices or well, however they present, sometimes they present as somatic, you know, some sort of somatic experience, uh, tight shoulder or a neck ache or something like that. Sometimes they present as voices, sometimes they oh, present thoughts. I said voices, but you know, these thoughts, it's well, a voice. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it's images. Um, sometimes it's even something like um, feeling of overwhelm or um, blankness. 
and dissociation or something like that. Those are all ways that parts are trying to help us and protect us. They just don't really understand how to do that for a grown-up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so all of those things to me are um, as unsettling as they are. And the more unsettling they are, actually, the more heartening it is, because that means you're that means your deepest exiled parts are beginning to have hope that they can be free. So they show up, the rage, the sadness, you know, and to me, that's always a sign of progress. It's like, oh, you know, this part that's so troubled that it's been exiled for what, however many years, um, suddenly begins to have hope. It's seen how the other parts have gotten freed and it suddenly has hope, but then, you know, you have to deal with the unsettling quality of that part when it shows up. Is how it got exiled in the first place. You know, the other parts are like, oh, no, it's the rage. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> not the rage. <laughs> yep. You know, being willing to feel the actual, like you said, somatic feelings and the emotional feelings without, um, without getting caught up into the story behind it. Yeah, that's that's a practice that I found for me to be really power powerful. Just allowing the the energetic movement of those feelings um, in meditation come up and uh, letting them letting yeah. them have their way for a minute. Yeah. Then they go thing. away. Yeah, <laughs> they, it's a great benefit of meditation is we're opening a really big space where everything can move and everything can be liberated. Um, that doesn't mean that we're that the managers are always going to be happy about some of those parts showing up, you know. Um, but the that Buddha heart and mind is never disturbed or distressed by them. Never. It's always some managers that get freaked out. And they're like, I thought we had this chain in the basement. <laughs> now look what you've done. See what your meditation has done? Now the angry part is out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. But if you understand that process, then you can turn toward them and say, I can see that you're really afraid of this part, but I don't think you should worry about it. Let me handle it. You know, like you, now you're in a sort of a different realm and working with all that energy that's moving. It's in, it's in a different realm entirely. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever, you know, the first time that it happened to me some years ago when I actually allowed myself to feel, um, and then I noticed it was an energetic movement that had a life and it built and then it morphed, it changed into started anger and then it went into grief and, you know, and then it just sort of kind of, I, I, I don't know, moved off in some way. And then, then I had confidence, you know, that if this were to happen again, and it was very, I was very curious about it. I thought, oh, this isn't so bad. This is really interesting. You know, this energetic, these energetic movements and contractions. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that quality of curiosity and friendliness mm -hmm. is so useful for dealing with all that comes up. What is this? Yeah, and what was interesting to me is that uh, this is, and I, this is one of my practices when I feel some sort of energy coming up, sometimes I'll get an insight, you know, about where it came from, maybe when I was three or something. Uh -huh. Other times there's no insight, nothing. It's just energy. It's, it's just, just energy. energy. Yeah. And then, 
Yeah. Yeah. And we, and we, you know, in our um, experience, we've labeled those energies in, in ways that, you know, uh, give, give some meaning to it to us, but that's not the only way to think about those energies moving and they're usually dynamically changing. So, you know, I sometimes talk about when, um, when I was in plays, acting in plays in high school, and my best friend was acting in plays with me. So right before you go on, there's a big rush of energy, right? A huge rush of energy, which she had decided was stage fright, and which I knew as excitement. So, um, so we were having the same rush of energy, but for her, it was painful and terrifying. And for me, it was like, let's go, you know, like, this is it. Um, and so it was funny to me um, much, much later to, because I thought we were having a different experience, but it really was just that rush of energy and the ways we processed it or the ways we interpreted it. So yeah, it's like the story we put with it. And if yeah. you could just let the story go and just feel it, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting. Um, it's a ride. Yeah, it's right. And I remember many years ago on one of my first retreats with you guys, um, I had that happen to me. That was the first time I really <clears throat> experienced what I'm talking about. And then I said, after it was all over, I felt this peace, like all of a sudden it was very quiet, not happy, not anything, just quiet. And I remember you telling me, oh, pay attention to that. <laughs> I was new. I was new to Zen, so I wasn't. I, I wanted to. I wanted to talk more about the grief that I had felt, or the, you know, whatever. But, but you know, um, later I began to see that after all these energetic movements, there is this quiet when they move off. Yeah. Just, just the stillness. Yeah. Yeah. That's our our natural habitat. Yeah. Well, See, Peg, Peg, you've had a lot of influence on me. Oh no, really? <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, I just will say that, uh, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, thank you for that. Well, I hope it's positive influence. That's what I hope. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Even if it didn't feel positive, at sometimes it was totally positive. <laughs> That's my intention. That's my, my intention anyway. Yeah. So, so we'll keep going.